Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. chapter 3. We'll read a couple of verses of scripture, Daniel 3, 17 through 18. We're going we're gonna to do something a little out of the ordinary tonight. We typically uh, do our God's Word for Life on Sunday mornings uh, but because of our schedule uh, in the past few weeks. Uh, we've kind of gotten a little off, so we're going to complete that and conclude that study here tonight as we've been talking about God's holiness and ours. God's holiness and ours is the theme. Brother Everett began our, our study talking about God's holiness and our holy God. And Brother Rayleigh taught on the subject called to be holy and God's call for us to join him in holiness and our response to that. And Brother Jerry Herndon followed him and taught us about being empowered by the Spirit to be holy. And tonight we're going to conclude that and talk about holy for a purpose. We're going to bring all of this together hopefully in the next hour and a half and, uh, and complete our study here tonight. Daniel 3, 17 through 18. The Bible says, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And we're going to talk tonight about holy for a purpose. We, we typically have already prayed at this point, but we haven't prayed yet over this word. So let's do that. Let's lift our hands to heaven and let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we... We come to you now with, without any preconceived notions or, or false, false preconditions, Lord, knowing that we are unable to do anything up to this point and beyond on our own. We know that we need your spirit. We need your word. We need your anointing, God, to rest upon us both to speak and to hear. And we ask you to do it in your holy name, in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. You can be seated. Holiness for a purpose. Holiness is, is certainly directly tied to worship. We can't talk about holiness without talking about worship. And worship is directly tied to principle. The fact of the matter is, is that you will worship what you hold in value. What you value, you will give yourself to. And you will adhere to the things that you deem to be appropriate and important. And our dedication is solely predicated upon what we hold in esteem. It's what we value. That's what we will hold ourselves to. And we've been created by a creative God 
who has created us for a purpose. And that purpose is worship. It's simply that. Our lives have been given to us. It's the breath that he's breathed into us for one purpose, the express purpose of bringing glory to the one who created us. And sometimes, unfortunately, that very act can bring about some very less than desirable, even dire circumstances. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps you've heard of him, I've I've used references of his before, is one of the most intriguing figures of World War II era Germany. His perennial classic, The Cost of Discipleship, has continued to inspire and challenge subsequent generations with a very clear-cut, absolute call of dedication. He's quoted as saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer and his twin sister Sabine were born on February the 4th, 1906 in Breslau, Germany to a well-to-do and influential family. At the age of 16, Dietrich entered the ministry and enrolled in the University of Tübingen in 1923 and later transferred to his father's school in Berlin. From the start, he was a distinguished student, publishing his first dissertation in 1927. Very young man. He published a second dissertation, Act and Being, in 1930. In 1932, Hitler swept to power and Bonhoeffer entered the struggle that would eventually define him. Having been raised a good Lutheran and a patriotic German, he was unwilling to stand by and allow Hitler's anti-Semitic policies to go unchallenged. He abandoned the state-sponsored Lutheran church and joined the dissident confessing church, even running an illegal seminary for, for a time. Influential friends from his time in America helped him obtain an appointment to the faculty of Union Theological Seminary in 1939. He arrived in the States on June 12th, but he departed again for Germany on July 25th because he simply could not ignore the dire situation facing his beloved homeland. To avoid military service, Bonhoeffer became a courier in the German intelligence service, which was the nerve center of German resistance to Hitler. Bonhoeffer, the the once staunch pacifist and patriot, worked to see that man assassinated. Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo on April 5th, 1943, and was sent to a military prison. It would be six months before he would even see a warrant for his arrest. After another failed attempt on Hitler's life, the infamous Operation Valkyrie, Bonhoeffer was transferred to Buchenwald in February of 1949. And on April 1st, prisoners could hear the report of Allied artillery. Two days later, Bonhoeffer was transported again to the extermination camp of Flossenburg, where he was finally tried and sentenced to death by hanging the next morning on April 9, 1945. Fellow prisoner and survivor Payne Best said of Bonhoeffer, he was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. Bonhoeffer's stance on the principles of the word of God certainly serve as a powerful witness of total dedication to a holy calling, no matter the outcome. We're presented with this theme throughout Scripture. The overtones of the Word of God are that of those who were presented with peril. Peril in opposition to the very act of standing with and standing for God. And one of the myriads of Scripture we've just read is one such circumstance in the story, the book of Daniel, 
of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is a very common scripture. It's known. But let's dive into that just a little bit deeper here tonight, if we will. Taken as young children from their homes, transplanted into a foreign culture, cut off from all contact with their families, and then forcibly indoctrinated into Babylonian way of life, even to the point of losing their given names. It's a trauma that very few of us here tonight, and I don't mean to, to, to downplay any circumstance or situation, but it's, it's a trauma that I'm certain that few of us can relate to. Yet, in a way, maybe we can. Maybe we can find ourselves in the midst of this epic tale. It's, it's quite... It is quite connected to us today. Obviously, Daniel is, is a, is a looking-ahead uh, type of writing, a book that, that looks into end times. It's not, it's not that we could necessarily uh, uh, find ourselves in the exact same circumstance that they found themselves then. We, we, can't, att- we can't attest to the, to the literal force of a totalitarian government. Can I get an amen? We live in a free society, a free country. But what we can relate to here tonight is this ever-imposing spiritual struggle that we all face. The constant intimidation and the overwhelming influence to just conform. The, The pressure to just assimilate. To just kind of get down into the 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 nitty-gritty, if you will, and just disappear in the crowd, to, to bow down and worship the edicts of this world's standards, to give in, to adopt and condone that that is completely in opposition to the will and the word of God. That's us. That's where we are. It's almost impossible for us to imagine the trauma that these men must have experienced, true, but really is it? They were forced to watch. They were forced to even cheer as Nebuchadnezzar came parading home, bearing the treasures of Solomon's temple, bragging about how he had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, never to rise again, not to mention the underlying glitz and glamour of life in the palace, as it were, the constant reminder of the wealth, the power, the prestige and the superiority of all things Babylonian. Can somebody find where Asaph was looking around and saying the prosperity of the wicked? Can we do that today? Can we just open our eyes and, and just pan around this, the landscape of where we are and see that the prosperity of the wicked is in our day? They were placed in the palace. They were forced to assimilate, yet these young men found ways to resist the allure of all this power and all this privilege and to retain their distinctive Jewish identity. Even in the midst of great struggle, even in their exile, even as their families had been carted away into a foreign nation, forced to assimilate, 
not asked to, but forced to. Can I tell you something here tonight? We can just pause right here and say this. If they could do it in ancient Babylon under the literal regime that they lived under, if they could retain their Jewish identity, we too in this world, in this 21st century cosmopolitan culture, we can maintain our apostolic identity even in the midst of our society as well. However, in the process of time, that became increasingly more and more difficult. And I'm implying something on purpose. It became increasingly difficult for them to maintain their identity and to maintain their separation. The pressure to bow down became greater and greater as time went on. To the point that Nebuchadnezzar constructed a golden image and commanded every citizen of the known Babylonian world to bow down whenever he deemed it necessary. That's very important for us to understand here tonight. To, to bow down to this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had replicated from his own imagination was to bow down and worship the image and Nebuchadnezzar as God. To bow down to that image would be in direct violation of the Word of God. And so it's safe to say that these three men were in quite the predicament. To bow down to that image equaled detriment to the relationship and to the commitment that they made to Almighty God. Yet violation of that Babylonian edict meant certain death. And now it's decision time. It is certain. It is without doubt. And it is certainly important for us to understand here tonight that these three Hebrews did not make this decision in a moment. They didn't make it in a moment. They didn't make it in that moment. Their decision was not made in a moment. And they didn't really make that decision when they were presented with the problem. I submit to you tonight that these men had made up their mind long before they were placed in this position. Long before this problem ever presented itself. Long before they were ever given this, this deduction that they would have to make on their own. Long before the moment began, they already made up their mind. Long before that ever came to fruition. Long before the real heat ever got turned up in their lives. These men, they already knew what time it was. They were already carted off from their home. They were already taken into exile. They were already forced into a, to a, an assimilation into a community and into a way of life that they were not accustomed to. And so they already knew where they were going. They already knew their surroundings and who they would be around. These Hebrew men, they sensed the animosity and the disdain that these Babylonians have from them from the very start. They understood their role in what God had allowed for them to have for them to happen to them and what God would carry out even in the midst of their own people's disobedience. You see, earlier in Daniel chapter 1 in the story, we see their refusal to eat the king's meat. 
They refused to eat long before they ever got to the furnace. They refused to eat the king's meat or the food that was provided from the king's table. You see, at that time, that, that seemed like such a small thing. That, that seemed like such an incon, uh, insignificant uh, circumstance. It, it might have even looked to some as, as a feeble, maybe passive-aggressive type gesture or even possibly to some it looked like a pointless stand. We're, we're not given any explicit instruction or, or any explicit reason as to why they abstained. We, we really don't know. There's, there's nothing that stands out in Jewish dietary law that, that, for, that forbid them or, 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 or called them uh, not to eat or consume the meat and the wine. Nothing, nothing necessarily stands out or demands a strict vegetable diet in which they took. But, but at, the, at the chance... At, at just at just the chance of some backroom deal that went on that they didn't see, maybe back in a corner somewhere, some Babylonian had taken that meat and offered it to one of their gods, or or maybe they had possibly just there's just a slight chance that they had poured out a drink offering to one of those false deities. These Hebrew boys were not content to associate themselves with even the thought at such an alliance, whatever that case might be, whatever it actually might be. It 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 all solidified their hearts steadfast commitment to living a holy and separated life publicly they took a stand unashamedly they let their disassociation be made known out in front they weren't trying to hide it they weren't trying to be uh, 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 flippant about it they weren't trying to to, 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 to just, just make a stand for, for, for no reason they publicly and unashamedly took a stand preparing for this moment ever since they arrived in Babylon they made up their mind a long time ago they said we're not we're we're just going to take a stand. We're we're not going to just we're not going to just assimilate. We might have to live here, but we don't have to do what goes on here. We might have to be here, but we don't have to be here. We can be back in Jerusalem. We can be Jewish right where we are. We can take a stand even in the seemingly minor matters because when major ones come our way, we will already be accustomed to the stand. We're already going to be used to it. We're already going to be accustomed to the stand. So again, it's important to note. They didn't, they didn't face immediate judgment. They abstained. In fact, they, they fared better than the other people in the court. They didn't face immediate judgment. It's important that to know that Nebuchadnezzar didn't, he didn't pass an immediate sentence on them. One could look at this and say this was a noble thing. Perhaps even a diplomatic gesture. But what we almost need to just slow down and understand is that the progression that this king had taken even in his own life. The throne and its power had produced a sort of grandiose or overestimated self-image in himself in other words the power just went to his head he became increasingly unstable and very over infatuated and over inflated with himself in fact in Daniel chapter 3 and 15 he said and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands well be careful what you ask king 
He had become so powerful in his own mind that he didn't regard any other God other than himself. So really and truly, the diplomacy was not necessarily noble. It was arrogance. It wasn't, it wasn't noble. It wasn't, it wasn't a noble or, di- or diplomatic act. It was designed to make these men question. It was just to throw something in there to question their own resolve or to see him as the supreme one. Overt and subtle all at the same time. Subversive. Sound familiar? It should. Similarly, the devil subtly delivered his question in the garden. Is he? Will he? Will it? Overtly questioning God's word and God's sovereignty. He artfully and cunningly presented an option. And likewise, here today, in this 21st century dynamic that we find ourselves in, we are presented day by day by day with the same questions and the same options. Is God who he says he is? Is God's word true? Will he do what he said he will do? Or do you trust man's wisdom? Do you trust him or do you trust man? We too are bombarded daily with this same predicament, this same problem. We are shown and we are forced to choose. Hear me now, our nation our political party, our economy, our own intellect, or our God. Now let me qualify this for just a moment here. Don't, don't, please don't mistake what I'm saying or please don't incorrectly quote me. I am thankful here tonight for the nation in which I lived, and I don't say this often, but I'm thankful for the nation in which I served. I believe that this is the greatest country, this is the greatest state, Can somebody say amen? This is the greatest county and counties, even if Levy County is in that little little group there. Levy County is one of the greatest counties in north central Florida as well. So please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But we are bombarded every single day. The news hour never ceases. It's a 24-hour rotation. And we are forced, we are forced to assimilate. We are forced to adhere. We are forced forced to listen to we are forced to believe or at least attempt to believe what what is coming out of that cycle we are shown and we are forced to choose the nation the political party the economy our intellect or is it God now one or at least those who seem or may appear to be pseudo religious or pseudo spiritual may argue that you can have both but I disagree because they demand from us our loyalty and our sacrifice, our complete trust in the righteousness of their decisions. After all, we the people place them in those positions. But the fact of the matter is this. At this point, all of it is at the product of human ingenuity, human reasoning, and human ability. And with people, with human beings, comes inherent flaw and frailty. Somebody hear me now. And in these situations, we are unable to say, 
save ourselves. Therefore, they are in no wise worthy of our worship and they are no wise worthy for us to bow down. While I may be thankful for what they stand for today, that might change in the morning. And so I'm going to make up my mind now. I'm going to bow to the king of kings and not just a king. I'm going to worship the king now and not bow out of anything else no matter the outcome. Then, I'm going to make up my mind now and not then. The Hebrews' determination to live for God was never predicated on a guarantee of an easy or a favorable outcome, period. Never predicated. They didn't, they didn't need to deliberate before they responded to the king. Flattery and false diplomacy did not garner their obeisance to him. They, they knew exactly what was at stake with their decision before they made it. They were not novice and they were not naive. Though they were young, they were far, far beyond their years. And they spent time in the ranks of Babylonian regime. They knew firsthand what an, an, an unapologetic dissidence would return them. And yet there is no, another very important aspect for us to hear to understand tonight. And that is the fact that they really didn't know what God would do. They didn't know. But I am very confident that it didn't take them 15 minutes of living in Babylonian society to know exactly what the Chaldeans would do if they didn't bow down. There was no case study available to them. There was no findings of, a, of an investigation that took, took place maybe decades before them in similar circumstances. Unlike us, they didn't have a great cloud of witnesses. They were the ones that would become that great cloud of witnesses. And so what these three men were doing was, was nothing short of inaugural. What, 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 would God save them or would he not? No one in that moment could truly tell. It was first-hand experience in first-time phenomenon. Yet the ambiguity of the moment did not dissuade them from their decision. Daniel 3 and 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful. In other words, it's not necessary for us to answer you in this matter. We don't have to say a word. We don't have to open our mouth. We're not careful. That means it's not necessary to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, or in other words, if he will, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou has set up. No three words ever effectually, respectfully, yet forcefully and unequivocally ever spoken by human beings, in my opinion, in human history. But those three words, but 
if not. But if not, he will, he can, but we don't know if he will or not. We don't have a case study about this. We don't know if this, there's nothing similar that's ever happened in our past that we can point to. We really don't know if he will or not. We, we know he can, but we don't know if he will. But if not, but if not, let it be known to you and to all that can hear us within earshot of what will be said and done in this moment. We are not serving your God. We are serving our God and we are not serving Him as a matter of convenience. It's not convenience that brings us to Him. It's not convenience that we pray to Him. It's not convenience that we go to Him for every need. It is because of who He is, not because his, it's convenient. Our reliance upon Him, our trust in Him, and our devotion to Him are not relegated on what He can or what He will or even what He might do for us. We know He can. We are not guaranteed that will but we can guarantee that we will not be bowing down to you and if I've got somebody here tonight that will attest to that that will clap their hands and say we are not going to bow down we are going to serve him and him alone and so here's where it becomes even more real that soft approach that that manipulative massaging now has become a little different. The, the appeal to be compliant has now become an anger-fueled conviction of crime. The threat of punitive consequences has now turned into the sound of a gavel in swift judgment, Daniel 3 and 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it, was, than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And so it was. But the if not, we already know the end of the story. But the if not did not occur. A fire so hot, it consumed, ironically, those who carried out the order of that narcissistic monarch. Yet it did not so much as singe the hair of those faithful few men. Nebuchadnezzar then peers in to that fire. He peers in to that seven times hotter furnace and saw an image. Isn't that interesting? Interesting that he saw an image. I mean, no disrespect here tonight, but we serve a cool God. Isn't God cool with that? He saw an image. Isn't that interesting? An image, unlike the mute, blind, and inept image that he had constructed after his own image, this image was not mute. It was not blind. It was actively protecting those men who refused to kowtow to the king. When Nebuchadnezzar called these Hebrews forth from the furnace, the Bible says in Daniel 3 and 27 that not even the smell of smoke 
was on them. The only thing missing were the ropes that they had bound them with and, and that they had been bound with. When, and, and when Nebuchadnezzar witnessed this miracle, he proclaimed in Daniel 3 and 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. And so herein lies the irony, uh, the irony of it all. Earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar scoffed. Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands in Daniel 3 and 15? But afterward, they said, we don't have to answer a word. He answered his own question. It is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because of the stance that these three men took, Nebuchadnezzar saw an image, an active image, and then received a revelation. And this, his, his revelation led to a decree in Daniel 3 and 29. Therefore I make a decree, he said, that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so if you don't hear anything else I say here tonight, if you're watching online or whether you're in this house right now, if, you, if you'll just stand, God will speak. If you'll just stand, God will show who he is. If you'll just stand he will fight your battles it doesn't matter what it is or who it is or what the circumstances may be if you'll just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord he will work for you and he will speak on your behalf our holiness is for a purpose and there will be there will be an end result to this pursuit thereof. Our holiness is for a purpose. And there will be an end result to our pursuit of it and our stance on it. And I'm closing. Isn't that neat? Somebody said he wasn't kidding. And I wasn't kidding. Our musicians can come, but I got a long runway. It is certain that without holiness, Hebrews 12 and 14, no man shall see the Lord. However, the act of being holy, and this is where we're this is where we were targeted for here tonight. Our act of holiness, our, our act of being holiness or, or being holy is, is not the payment for salvation. I'll say that again. The act of being holy or set apart is not payment for salvation. It does not buy or bring a return of obligation on the part of God. This is not a transaction. We are commanded to be holy. 1 Peter 1 and 16. Because he is holy. It can be easy to read stories like this. And, and somehow think that 
their stance, these Hebrew young men and their, and their staunch separation and their strict adherence to the word of God somehow predicted their deliverance. But it didn't. And I'm sorry to say here tonight, it still doesn't. You see, they said it themselves. But if not, it was their admonition and their admission that their God might not choose to deliver them. It was an ever so slight nod to the many thousands of, 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 of Israelites that had gone before them, perhaps including their own parents, their own family, their own friends who lost their lives in that Babylonian conquest. You see, there were other fiery furnaces. There were other circumstances. There were other experiences in that exile, many without the miraculous ending that we see in the book of Daniel. We are called to be holy for a purpose. And it's God's purpose that we are called to be holy, not ours. We are called to simply be a witness. And we are called to be a witness no matter the outcome. And hear me tonight. There will be an outcome. Biblically, there are two. Conversion or condemnation. Jesus himself taught, exemplified, and experienced both. You see, there were those who sat before him, who heard his word, who listened to him, some that even followed him for a time that were converted. Yet those, there were those who heard the word, and they were in the same crowd that day that said, crucify him. Condemnation or conversion. We hope for conversion. But what we must understand is that condemnation is always possible and in many ways ultimately plausible and probable. He said in this world you shall have tribulation. But let, let not your heart be troubled. I've already overcome all of that. You're going to have it. It's going to happen. But don't let your heart be troubled. Our holiness outward and inward is simply that. It's just a witness. Now I'm not trying to oversimplify this here tonight. And I'm not trying to downplay holiness in any way, shape, or form. It is most important. But it is very simple. It is only to be a witness. In a courtroom setting, the task of the witness is not to convince or exonerate or even to sway the jury. The witness's task is to simply be the witness. To faithfully represent what he or she knows to be true. And then the response is entirely left up to other people. Simply be the witness. 
Simply adhere to what you know is true. Stand for what you know is right. And then it's out of the witness's hands. And so it is with the life of holiness. Along with our verbal testimony, holiness is a key part of our witness to the world. God called on and called out Israel. And then he placed them right back in among the nations to serve as priests among the nations. When God calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, he doesn't make us a celestial body that is somehow uh, free from disease, free from, from the, the ails of this life and, and, and somehow free of the, the condemnation that may come against the child of God. He calls us out of darkness and then he places us as his light in the midst of darkness to be a witness. You see, Israel was to teach the watching world what it meant to serve Jehovah. They were to be his witnesses. They were to be a model to show the difference that worshiping the one true living God would make rather than giving themselves to become like the nations that surrounded them. God did not call them to assimilate. He called them to be an example. And so it is with us. The lifestyle of holiness is so powerful. The lifestyle of holiness in this world is so powerful. And if lived correctly, the witness of holiness can be powerfully influential because nobody, not man, not governments, not edicts, no mandates, no admonishments, no forced assimilation can take your holiness from you. It is from God. It is His holiness. And He bestows it upon us. And no one can take it from us. No one can take it from you. It's yours. It's yours to have. It's yours to stand with. It's yours to be a witness unto the nations for God Almighty. Stand with me this evening. Despite his conviction and his stance on righteousness, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not miraculously delivered from the hands of the Germans. But even the threat of death could not deter his steadfast commitment. Theologian, pastor, spy, would-be assassin, eventual martyr. A tragically shortened life that still stands today as a powerful witness of total dedication to a holy calling. A reminder that the ultimate cost of discipleship can and most times be laying down your own life. Camp doctor at Flossenburg witnessed Bonhoeffer's last minutes on earth and he left this account. He said at the place of execution, he said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. And in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God.
That wasn't a Christian theologian. That was a camp doctor on the German side. Completely resistant to the atrocities committed by that rogue government in which he stood against, yet so decidedly dedicated to the righteousness of the God whom called him. Bonhoeffer lived the but if not side of his faith. He lived the but if not portion of that statement and faced death with his whole heart given to the cause of Christ. We're talking about holiness for a purpose. Now I know that we can look at this as a negative here tonight. You've bought down the Christmas spirit here on a Wednesday night. But that's not at all my intent here. It's just to drop a little reality on our lap here and tell us that we are called. We are called out for a reason. God called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And He has called you to a life of holiness for His purpose. He has called us to it. And with His Spirit, He will empower us through it to live a life that is holy for the cause of Christ. And hear me tonight, there is no greater or more noble calling than the call to holiness. There is no greater, more noble calling than this. And so I wonder if there are a few, maybe if even all, would say let's pursue it. Let's give ourselves to it and let's allow God's light to shine through it and through us in Jesus' name. Do I have a few that will say that here tonight that will lift their hands to heaven in these closing moments and ask the Lord to help you, to give you the, the, the power, to give you the strength to be holy, to be called out and to be called to God. Lord, we are lifting up our hearts to you now. We're lifting up our lives to you, Lord. We're lifting up our intentions to you, Lord, and asking you to help us. Asking you to help us, Lord, to do and to be what you've called us to be, God. We'll do it, Lord. We need your help, and we know that you're able to help us in Jesus' name. Come on, let's lift our voice. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.